This is Melissa, and today is August 27, 2023, and this redux is from August 30, 2020, a longer talk from Alan Watt, about 4 hours 13 minutes, entitled Elites Working Complicity Toward Efficiency. Hear the cries of anarchy, arson, sedition. Kissinger's New World Order comes into view. It said Bolshevik hell is just repetition, so masses can be ruled by technocratic few. So I have spent the last several hours trying to get to the bottom of some technical issues that I'm having. The last several things that I've recorded, it sounds like I'm about a mile away from the microphone recording in the middle of a high windstorm. I haven't changed any settings at least not intentionally. I don't know what has changed. And I haven't really been able to figure it out satisfactorily, this just terrible hissy hum. I downloaded a program that was supposed to work with my virtual mixing board, and he said, oh, and then just get this plug-in. I followed along the video, and Microsoft would not allow me to run the program. I tried several different workarounds, open as administrator, try this, try that. Wouldn't do it. It it just decided that it would be harmful. And there was no workaround. (laughs) So, So I couldn't get the virtual noise gate that I wanted. I'm not that good at things like this, but I really tried, so I don't know if the sound quality is any better, but I think the point of all of this is I'll do anything before I sit down in front of the mic um, and just this kind of fear and hesitation. Oh, I don't have anything to say. And the only time that I get around that is if I've been doing such a volume of research that I'm, I've, I've stumbled on something and I'm so, so excited to share it. But most of the time I'm just, uh, but yesterday I received an order in the mail for a disc from someone who not long ago had ordered the ancient religions, ancient history, uh, discs, the two disc set. And it was a very nice card they sent. It was a homemade card, really well done with a picture of Alan on the front. So nice. And then inside, there was a homemade kind of fold over that they'd written on that also came from the image on the website of Alan with his guitar. And they'd added in some things and personalized it. But what they were writing was that they had enjoyed the discs that they ordered. He said that he enjoyed listening to Alan talk to Jackie Petru, and there was something that Alan had said about how everything out there, information, is now so standardized. People talk about the same things, and they generally talk about them in the same way. So he was telling Jackie, we need people to speak from the heart spontaneously, Not rehearsed, not thought out and planned, but just spontaneously from the heart. And so I was grateful for the order and the card. It was 
was quite nice, nice to look at, and I set it up on the bookshelf. But I really needed that reminder from Alan that the important thing is that I just speak from the heart and be spontaneous about it. So it just occurred to me a couple of minutes ago that what I could tell you about um, that might be interesting or helpful was my outing to a baseball game last night. Now, I don't like baseball. I don't particularly like outings. I don't like time away from what I think is important. And, you know, every once in a while I have to tear myself away to do something. But uh, mostly I I just want to be working on the website and working on talks and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But last month, my Aunt Betty wanted to go to the Chamber of Commerce luncheon because they were celebrating the, it was like the pioneer days. I think it was about, I don't know, 25 or 30 years ago that they had started the Chamber of Commerce in this area. And my father was one of the pioneers, one of the first to join. And my aunt had worked for him for years. And so she wanted to go to that. So we went, you go and you buy your lunch, your ticket for lunch, and you get a little, you know, one of those stubs that has numbers on it. So you get a prize, you, you, you get your number, and then the other duplicate of that goes in a bowl and they, they pick the prizes. So we picked our seat and we went and got in line for lunch. We sat down. I was with my younger brother and we sat with some people that I guess my aunt has known for years and years and we're having our lunch and she's got her ticket right in front of her. And I said, Betty, you are going to win a prize today. I just have a feeling. And she said, oh, I never win anything. <laughs> so anyway, they did the drawing a little bit later. And I th- there was about six or seven different prizes every month when they have these luncheons. And she saw there was a pink suitcase that was one of the prizes. And she said, oh, that's so pretty. And then there was a massage. Oh, that would be good. You know, I gave your father a gift certificate for that one time, you know. And then they had a gift, they had a gift certificate to the local florist. So all these prizes and she's not winning anything. The very last ticket was Betty's number. And what she won was four tickets to a baseball game. And there is a a newish stadium in the next town over, and they have a minor league baseball team. So that's what I knew. Now, Betty was totally surprised. She said, well, how did you know I was going to win? And I said, oh, it's just a lucky guess. And she said, but I, I would have loved the pink suitcase or the flowers. I don't want to tickets to a ball game. I said, oh, it'll be fun. We'll all go. The the brothers, me, you, we'll go. It'll be fun. And she said, yeah, but I, you know, you said I was going to win something, but I I don't want tickets to a ball game. I said, well, Betty, my precognition didn't go so far as to say, Betty is going to win a prize that she really, really likes. So that didn't happen. But anyway, this we get down to the last two games of the season, 
And we're like, well, we better use it now. Well, she didn't want to go because you're sitting out, and even though the game doesn't start until like 7.05 p.m., you're sitting in 100-degree weather. That's um, about 39 or 40 degrees for the rest of the world that's not on Fahrenheit. And, yeah, when the sun goes down, it drops just a few degrees, but... Uh, you know, we left, it was still about 95, which is, what is that? I don't know, 37, somewhere in there. It's hot. But we went to the ball game and I was thinking, I don't really have the time to spare. I knew I had these, this technical issue looming over me. I hadn't quite figured out what to try to do about it. And then it takes some time to make a video, whether I talk or not. It still takes some time to find the illustrations for that. So, you know, I'm like, no, just tune all that out. And and you're here. And what would Alan say? Because, you know, it's bread and circuses. And he just had such contempt for grown men running around chasing balls and, you know, playing games. This was just silliness to him. But I said, no, let's observe, let's take it all in, let's just have the experience. We left at the end of the ninth inning. It was a tie, and they had gone into extra innings, and I have no idea what happened with the game. We had great seats. We were right behind the home plate, so you couldn't have better seats. It was a nice stadium. Um, the, the bathrooms were air-conditioned. I thought, well, if it gets bad, I can just hang out in the bathroom. And we had water and Gatorade and a bag of peanuts. So it was a real experience. And I was just watching what what happens in the audience when they sing the national anthem. Oh, and look at the seventh inning. Then everybody stands again, and, and, and we all sing God Bless America. And I was kind of impressed with the local talent, the, their local singers. I, I thought they were pretty good. And they had some amusement at each inning. They had children going out and playing little games, little races, little relay races, pop the balloon, run back and forth. You know, so it was nonstop engaging the audience. That's what I was noticing. Nonstop. You're not going to be bored. There is a, a board, you know, that shows you the visuals over there. And then you're going to clap and shout foul ball and, you know, whatever. You, you've got your cue. But this was the interesting thing was that I noticed that the audience all seemed to know exactly what to do. And I, I, I thought, well, some of these things must be ancient, like since the very beginning of baseball, you know, and they're going to make a scene, take me out to the ball game. And, you know, so there, there, there was a, a real, a real collective spirit at play. And everything was catchy. All the tunes were recognizable. And when we were in the car on the way home, one of my brothers said, well, that was two and a half hours of nonstop hooks. You know, meaning the little catchy thing that you all know. I said, yes, it was. I said, but what really interested me, because we sat there at a few points with the hook, and we were picking out the song, you know, okay, that's the hook, that's the beginning of this song. And then one of my brothers would kind of launch into it, but we were, of course, totally alone in that behavior, <laughs> And there was another one where I'm like, oh, I know this, you know, so I, I start to go along with the song, but the audience is dead silent now. They're waiting, okay, there's the pitcher, there's the batter, and and they 
all knew instinctively when to clap, when to stop clapping, when to sing, when to stop singing, what to say, when to say it, and they did it like a school of fish. And I, I just know that there were people there that, that a few people I'm sure that perhaps had never been to a ball game or hadn't been in years. But it's like we all got this lesson early on. This is when we clap, and this is when we sing. And I remember Alan sharing with us a few times about his first day in school, and he walked out of his first day in school. They had to send people after him. They called his mother. They eventually, you know, found him and brought him back to be part of the group. But what had turned him off as a young child was that one of the very first activities that they wanted the group, the school children to do was a group activity. And the teacher was having them do something in unison, probably something silly, something aimed at, you know, a five or six year old child. And Alan wasn't having any of it. It was just like, this is stupid. I'm leaving. But I, this is a technique that they have known about forever and ever. It's a technique that Bernays used. It's a technique that Bernays used specifically so that people could be, you know, Bernays's idea was that people, you know, the masses don't know how to vote. They don't know how to think. They don't know what to do. So, to control the outcome of a so-called democracy, we have to tell them what to do. We have to shape their minds and shape their opinions. This is propaganda. But to see it in the microcosm of a ball game was just so interesting. It groupthink is very real, and when you're in the midst of it, it's I don't want to say it's as simple as scary. It's just it's eye-opening. It really is. It's eye-opening. One of the things that Alan said in this talk is that we, that history, real history, real history is inside of each of us. It is ours to act, to access. Real history is my history. That's your history. And history isn't just something that happened in the past. It is what you're observing now that momentarily will be the past. But history, real history, is based on your experiences and your observations. And that's just one of the only safe places left to us is our own mind. This is why, you know, Alan cautioned and forewarned that the hardest thing would be to hold on to your sanity after 9-11, the step, the step up, the kickoff to the total surveillance state. But it is, if you can hold on to that, and if you can keep your own firewall up, and you are the decider very judiciously and carefully deciding what information that you allow to go into your mind, then as an individual, you have a chance to make it through what is really a minefield out there. Someone sent me the other day 
a story. Um, I think they sent it to me chiefly because it cited a document, a study that had come out from the Aspen Institute. And I read the whole story, and the title of it is Tracking Orwellian Change, The Aristocratic Takeover of Transparency. Klaus Schwab, the Aspen Institute, and others flipped the meaning of a word that once meant the empowerment of populations against political elites. Now, the first thing I noticed about this piece was that it was written by the journalist Matt Taibbi. And I didn't follow too very closely the Twitter files, but Matt Taibbi was one of the journalists that Elon Musk gave uh, the documents from Twitter. And I didn't follow that too closely because I just knew right at the beginning that this was a limited hangout. I even felt cynical about it, that the idea that Musk is seeking... I mean, he could have just put this out there, right? Or it could have all been done in a big... Um, WikiLeaks, Julian Assange way, you know, just the major dump and, and let citizen journalists or just the average person, just anybody can access this and go through and decide for themselves what it means. But no, it was selected documents that he gave selected journalists. So I kind of had my guard up about that and didn't want to bother getting into it too deeply. But here's Matt Taibbi's article, or at least a bit of it. I will put the link up, and there is embedded in it a little clip of Klaus Schwab speaking that he mentions there. It's interesting. He said, about to hit the road for vacation, I wanted to highlight something that Walter Kern brought up in the most recent America This Week and popped up repeatedly as a never-published theme of the Twitter files, the shameful dystopian corruption of the noble word transparency. Now, all of this was interesting to me, interesting history. What follows next? Transparency was one of America's great post-war reforms. In 1955, a Democratic congressman named John Moss from California, who served in the Navy in World War II, was nominated for office by both Democrats and Republicans and was never defeated in any election for public office, introduced legislation that would become one of the great triumphs of late-stage American democracy. The Freedom of Information Act took a tortuous path to becoming law, opposed from the start by nearly every major government agency and for years struggling to gain co-sponsors despite broad public support. In a supreme irony, one of Moss's first Republican allies was a young Illinois congressman named Donald Rumsfeld. After a series of final tweaks, it eventually passed the House 307 to 0, in 1966, when it landed on the desk of Lyndon Johnson, who didn't like the bill either. Johnson signed it, but decided not to hold a public ceremony, electing instead to issue a public statement crafted by none other than Bill Moyers, who would go on to be uh, one of those longtime journalists that Alan would talk about, the spokesman, the, the granddaddy that we all trust and respect. 
So his statement concluded, I signed this measure with a deep sense of pride that the United States is an open society. Now, I'm going to skip through a little bit of this. It, it is interesting, and you can read the whole thing yourselves, but it just talks about how effectively the Freedom of Information Act was used over the years. Taibbi goes on to write, Transparency for decades was understood to mean a pro-democratic concept giving ordinary citizens the power to see their government, how their government operates, how taxes are spent, and whether or not public officials are complying with laws. It was not dystopian gibberish when the word became synonymous with the fight against abuse of power through organizations like Transparency International's Corruption Perceptions Index. By 2023, the transformation of the term transparency has advanced to a stage where the word is now commonly understood by politicians to mean the mathematical opposite of what someone like John Moss would have thought. When elite politicians and media figures speak of transparency now, they mean giving government power to obtain transparency into the activities of private citizens. Matt goes on to write, I first noticed this quirk going through a batch of Twitter emails from late 2017 through early 2018 when company lawyers began to speak about communicating to the Senate Intelligence Committee plans to increase, quote, transparency efforts around content moderation, end quote. Internal debates also about proposed laws like Europe's Digital Services Act wondered if companies like Twitter might better serve governments attempting to root out foreign, quote, disinformation, end quote, by providing increased, quote, transparency, end quote, to intelligence services. You see what, you see what he's saying there? So it helps governments root out disinformation by allowing governments to have better access via their intelligence services to private citizens' data. Taibbi goes on to write, Later in 2021, the Aspen Institute issued a final report on information disorder that contained an entire section on recommendations to increase transparency. This is a perfect example of deceptive use of language as you will ever find, and also involves the bastardization of the word journalism, which in the context of these anti-disinformation efforts means examination of private data by qualified academic researchers. You know, and I'll just say there, who determines who is qualified? Okay, so your private data goes to qualified researchers to pass on to government. Congress should also require, this is from the Aspen Institute, Congress should also require platforms to disclose certain categories of private data to qualified academic researchers so long as that research respects user privacy does not endanger platform integrity and remains in the public interest. 
I mean, you know, and I mean, I mean, I'm sorry there, but right there, the, 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 this is the 180. Respecting user privacy is, can be diametrically opposed to what is in the public interest. But that concept of privacy is clearly out the window now. Congress should require the platforms to disclose selected private data to qualified researchers working in the public interest, including any government agency or regulatory or investigative body. The invocation of terms of services to deny access to public interest researchers is detrimental to vital research and reporting, while the protection of user privacy is important. Platforms should not be permitted to use privacy as a pretext for restricting and stopping research. So I go on to add here, this is the public-private. This is what Alan would mean when he would talk about no complaints department. Because Congress, a so-called public for the people body, is going to determine what is available to public interest researchers, and I can guarantee you that all of them are going to come from private organizations, for instance, such as the Aspen Institute. Taibbi goes on, the above video of World Economic Forum head Klaus Schwab speaking on the topic, which circulated a great deal last week, represents the extreme villainous end of the reversal. Transparency in Schwab's conception has been turned on its head to mean an unavoidable system of total non-privacy the world must learn to accept. This is not exactly a new thought of his. As far back as 2014, he responded to Edward Snowden's disclosures about National Security Agency surveillance by saying how important it was to protect ourselves against technological possibilities. But, Schwab added, everything is transparent, whether we like it or not. This is unstoppable. If we behave acceptably and have nothing to hide, it won't be a problem. So there you go. Uh, You can read the rest of that article yourselves, but there is Schwab saying, what Alan would always paraphrase, well, I've got nothing to hide. I don't care, you know, if they're watching me. I don't care if they know every move that I'm making online. I've got nothing to hide. And there is Klaus Schwab saying, if we behave acceptably and have nothing to hide, it won't be a problem. I looked up the report from November 2021 from the Aspen Institute. It's entitled Commission on Information Disorder. And I started scanning through there. But the very first thing that I noticed about this document was that it didn't define, not up front and not for many, many pages at least, uh, I I never really found a clear definition. I had to go outside of this document to find a definition of information disorder. One thing that I found said, fake news and misinformation dominate today's headlines, but identifying and understanding these issues can be difficult. Information disorder refers to the many ways our digital environment is polluted with misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. MDM. (laughs) Like, 
we had WMD and now we have MDM. Huh? Malinformation. The mass consumption of misleading or harmful information poses many challenges to our society, such as encouraging confirmation bias and echo chambers, polarizing society, influencing public opinion, blah, blah, blah. Well, I'm just here to say that um, our elite who have controlled the media for decades are the ones who uh, put out fake news and misinformation. And they are the ones who create echo chambers and they are the ones who polarize society and influence public opinion. And I, the, I crystallizing public opinion was, uh, if not Bernays, it was his, it was Walter Lippmann. I think it might have been a Walter Lippmann book entitled Crystallizing Public Opinion. So, I mean, this is what they've been doing for, you know, since the lifetime of our great, great, great grandparents. Um, but it is imperative now, according to this definition, that policymakers, researchers, journalists, and the general public who want to know how such content spreads and the real world harms that they define this and make it available. The Aspen Institute has their 80-page document, their PDF. I'll put up that link. It says, information disorder is a crisis that exacerbates all other crises. When bad information becomes as prevalent, persuasive, and persistent as good information, it creates a chain reaction of harm. Well, I just want to say that to be an adult, to be an awake, alive adult, requires that you be able to live with a bit of information disorder. It's really helpful if you understand that it is the elite themselves who give us this disorder. But I would rather have the very real, everyday, prevalent problem of not knowing who to trust, not knowing if something is biased or genuine or if the person who is putting it out is, is genuine. Oh, they say they're grassroots. They say they're this or say they're that. But in other words, what I'm saying is I would rather depend on my own limited knowledge, my own limited but real history when I am deciding using my instincts and my intuition whether something is true or not true. I don't want a group of qualified researchers deciding what I should or should not be able to take in this is just frustrating to me as having Microsoft decide that an app that I want isn't safe and I can't have it, nor can I open it as administrator. In other words, I just can't have it because somebody else decided it was unsafe. But Alan has talked for a long time about this, you know, total control over the media that was, you know, total for a long time, but increasing, increasing. He talked about the UK's Levison inquiry, and that dated back, I think, to like 2011, 2012, somewhere in there. And it was not long after that that Australia had a similar inquiry. And now we have uh, the Trusted News Initiative. Now, the Trusted News, notice the timing on this. The Trusted News Initiative first began to be publicized in March of 2020. Trusted News Initiative announces plans to tackle harmful 
coronavirus disinformation. This is from the BBC, March 27, 2020. An industry collaboration of major news and tech organizations will work together to rapidly identify and stop the spread of harmful coronavirus disinformation. Uh, what? Okay. So we're two months into this, but they're going to let you know, we've got it. We've got your back here. The Trusted News Initiative, TNI, was set up last year. Uh, this is interesting. Think about the timing here. This is 2020. It was set up last year. This would have been, okay, we'll just hear the next sentence out. To protect audiences and users from disinformation, particularly around moments of jeopardy, such as elections. The TNI complements existing programs partners have in place. Now the partnership will extend its efforts to identifying false and potentially harmful coronavirus information by putting in place a shared alert system. The partners within the TNI, I've just skipped over a bit, but you can read that yourselves, are BBC, Facebook, Google slash YouTube, Twitter, Microsoft, AFP, Reuters, European Broadcasting Union, Financial Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Hindu, CBC Radio Canada, First Draft, Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. And I noticed in seeking out this article that many other big uh, news entities signed on to this. Also, in looking this up, though, I came to one of the more chilling things. But before I get to one of the more chilling things, in this excerpt of Alan Watts' talk from August 30, 2020, he's talking a bit about revolution, the groups that are used in a planned revolution. He spoke specifically about Antifa and BLM. And I was just thinking, well, we don't hear too, too much about those groups right now. But this seems to me that this is the phase of the revolution that we're in, which is we're going to have rotating or ever-shifting, ever-moving groups that come to the front, or it may not necessarily be a group. So what is going on right now? Well, fires are burning, and people are wondering why so many fires are burning, what has started them. And I will put up a couple of videos. I'm not necessarily promoting the voice or the point of view of these speakers, but interesting points are raised, and I think that it is worth you, if you have the time to look or listen or watch, that you just hear some ideas about these fires and what possible use that they're having. But whether these are occurring in nature because of drought conditions around the globe, whether there was some other element involved in the way they started and were spread, this, these are crises that our elite are not letting go to waste. And that is... That's how revolution happens. It's crisis, crisis. So when you've got Antifa and BLM, you've got this um, mostly peaceful protesting going on and things burning up. It just segues into the next thing, into the next thing, into the next thing. And I have a feeling that we're going to be that way for quite some time until we are fully phased in 
to the fourth industrial revolution with the next generation, the next type of human creation that is being put into place right now. But the, back to that chilling thing that I discovered when I was looking for information disorder. This came from, this was published at the NIH, National Library of Medicine, National Institutes of Health. And we've all heard a lot about the National Institutes of Health in recent years. But the NIH published in April of 2020 on the NIH National Library of Medicine a paper entitled, it actually came from the Journal of Nepal Medical Association, but as I say, published on the NIH. The title was Information Disorder Syndrome and Its Management. Okay, so now we're talking about health, right? The Journal of Nepal Medical Association publishing a paper on the National Institutes of Health on Information Disorder Syndrome and its Management. Okay? The abstract says, Many of us may be unknowingly suffering from Information Disorder Syndrome. Okay, how creepy is that? That's right out of Orwell's 1984 when Winston's friend's daughter turns him in for his dissident thinking. And the friend says to Winston, I am so glad that she turned me in. I didn't even know that I was suffering from bad think. Okay, so that line again. Many of us may be unknowingly suffering from information disorder syndrome. It is more prevalent due to the digitized world where the information flows to every individual's phone, tablet, and computer in no time. Information disorder syndrome is the sharing or developing of false information with or without the intent of harming, and they are categorized as misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. Okay, so this disease has levels of severity, and they're going to tell us about it. The severity of the syndrome is categorized into three grades. Grade 1 is a milder form in which the individual shares false information without the intent of harming others. Grade two is a moderate form in which the individual develops and shares false information with the intent of making money and political gain, but not with the intent of harming people. And grade three is a severe form in which the individual develops and shares false information with the intent of harming others. The management of this disorder requires the management of false information, which is rumor surveillance, targeted messaging and community engagement, repeated sufferers at the grade one level. All sufferers from grade two and three levels need psychosocial counseling and sometimes require strong regulations and enforcement to control such information disorder. The most critical intervention is to be mindful of the fact that not all posts in social media and news are real and need to be interpreted carefully. And then they go on to tell you about more about the syndrome and more about the, how the syndrome can be managed medically, right? 
So the first thing is that they have to surveil the information itself. And it goes on to talk about how Facebook is limiting and Twitter is limiting and doing this and so forth. Let's get to the psychosocial counseling. Psychosocial counseling may be necessary for every individual who is suffering from information disorder syndrome, mostly for individuals at the grade one level. Individual targeted messaging and community engagement can help prevent and control information disorder. Those who are addicted to social media and have excessive online activity, narcissism, and are at grade two and three require psychosocial counseling. Cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, and motivational enhancement therapy are recommended, although there is no gold standard intervention. That's enough for me. I am going to leave you with Alan's talk. I'll just say that we are living in really awful, scary times. Don't let your guard down. (laughs) Just because you can go to a baseball game and you can clap your hands to a catchy little grabber that everybody in the stadium seems to know does not mean that we are living in a world in which we have freedom and rights and are able to do what we want and say what we want and go where we want. I think that we're in a lull between storms. And so... Buckle up. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 30th of August 2020. And as always, I hope you're hanging in there and uh, getting through these insane times because we're living through the, the biggest exercise, really, in mind control and warfare. It's all warfare. It's mental warfare in the whole population of the planet. And psyops, etc. And revolutions, all sponsored often and traced back to the same few people. It's quite astonishing, isn't it? That regardless of the COVID idea and the Bill Gates Foundation, the London Gates Foundation, and Fauci and all these characters and the head of the WHO, uh, you can tie them all together, can't you? And you see all the, the funding from the same old big corporations going to, to BLM, which again is Marxist, as we know. Uh, a beautiful cover, though. Remember, communism always hides behind covers. It uses excuses. It always did. There were dozens and dozens of them in the 1960s that were Christian. And the Christian groups and churches had no idea they were getting used but they were, they were great covers because they would promote policies which the Marxists wanted to, to be put into, to weaken America, actually. And that's what you always find. Behind the covers, there's an, a weakening of the state. And, yeah, you can always <laughs> complain about the state as much as you want. The state of affairs isn't that great, is it? But uh, the reality, too, is that there, there are other players that simply want to end up in the ruling seats and displace the, the, the present rulers of it all. Uh, that's really what it is, or, or really to, to maximize their power, their existing power, and take over their remaining seats in <laughs> politics and governance and so on. And you have to understand that, that uh, you're living through amazing times, that nothing's happening by chance. You've got the Pentagon obviously in on the same act. 
with different generals standing by. They're all on the payroll of the military-industrial complex, which will still be working for a long time under the auspices of the United Nations and NATO uh, organization. Uh, as they, again, go through this game of divvying up the world into competing factions of apparent conflict, you know. That's how the Cold War was, really. There were more billionaires created during the Cold War than ever before, maybe even afterwards, because all governments and all sides took tax money and put billions and billions, without question, into defending the people by creating more and more missiles, etc., and jets and, and military equipment. Way overpriced, I know, we just matter what they made, it was always way overpriced, but no questions were asked. I like the COVID idea, it's to keep you safe. So, it's you know, it's a wartime scenario, you see, and of course COVID is, is, has all the attributes of a wartime scenario. Of course it does. More than you think, actually, because there are signs and symptoms to techniques of controlling the public through fear uh, and wartime for compliance reasons. And we've had all the exercises exposed from Event 201 and long before that, too, with uh, the, the Rockefeller lockstep idea as well. And, and again, many other organizations that, that are maybe, some of them I'll mention tonight that the Gavi and Bill Gates group still control as well. There are so many organizations you see all telling you the same stories. So important to control all the media and, uh, and, and the flow of information. You think you've got lots of competing organizations giving their, no, you, they're giving the same opinions, all the media, the official media, because they're all owned by a small coterie of people. Going way back, I mentioned that years ago in talks when Rockefeller and others, the Rockefeller especially, got a group of his, his, his uh, <laughs> hijackers, you know, to get, because they hijacked other companies all the time to, to basically take them over and, uh, and stop competition. Ro- old man Rockefeller said that competition is a sin. And he meant it. There's an organization running the world that, that truly believes they have the right to own everything in it the technocratic type, and to rule everybody under it, basically. That hasn't changed. It's, it's more than ever enforced today. You can actually see some of the, the, the front people coming forward, maybe lower edges of them, but it's still the same organization. And the idea was to take over the world's resources. Everything that you need to exist as an individual human being, and then collectively, uh, is owned by uh, people you don't even know, generally. They make all the policies, how much food you're going to be able to buy or even get, or even if you can get it, or even if you can buy it. And it's all coming to pass right now, because this is to be your winter of discontent is coming up. Because it'll either make or break this big agenda for the World Economic Forum, for its global reset, you know, of the economy, of your way of living, on the value, actual value, and, and the, basically the, uh, almost like an examination paper with tick marks. You'll all get checked off on a, on a checklist of things that, that to, to, they'll give you extra help if you need it, if you're ill or whatever it happens to be, according to your status or importance or necessity to their society. That's how it's going to get put out, actually. It's already in force. And that's why they're killing a lot of elderly people in the hospitals. It was in force before COVID came along when they introduced euthanasia. Everything's economics, you see.
and the value to their system. Even though you paid for it, it doesn't make any difference. They're, they're thieves that run the world. And they have all the signs and symptoms of gangs. And that's a fact. There are other people who have come out with this too. That you have all the signs and symptoms of organized crime. Big, big organized crime at the very top. And the relationship, as I've mentioned before, between Bill Gates, Monday Gates Foundation, and the, I had no, I guess, don't, don't forget to Fauci and his wife. And, uh, and his wife too is a bioethicist working with the government to, to again, evaluate the, everybody's status in society and your value to the system, system. And that's, that's what bioethics is all about, folks. That's what it's about. So you're living through the big scientific takeover of society. For the planet. They've always been after this global society. And um, going way back into the 1800s, folk have no idea that the British Empire, this oddball thing, the British Empire, was run by a, a secretive group in the city of London, Lord Alfred Milner. He, he published books himself about it. And he, and again, some of the people who took over much later, like Carl Quigley, who was a historian for them, uh, praised them to the highest heavens for, for taking over the world and trying to get a world governmental system in place. Uh, again, with this, this, he didn't mention technocratic system, but that's what it was. Quickly knew it was because he believed that the right again to go after the world's resources even then. And he was all for their agenda. And Britain was used. Really, the people who get used, generations can pass. They haven't got a clue they're being used. You understand that? They just think, well, we're off to another war with so-and-so today, and, and it might last for a few years. And after it's over, you don't realize, no, uh, maybe maybe two dozen people have corporations in London that end up ransacking that country by taking resources out of it, and your troops are guarding it all for them. Even the troops don't really know what they're there for, except they're, they're bringing civilization, they think, to these people. <laughs> it's quite amazing to watch it happen, because it's still happening today. Huh? Often the countries that were dominated are coming back to the parent countries, <laughs> like Britain, and dictating to them now, because often, in some ways, they become... Uh, wealthier themselves, the people that were left behind. And now they're dictating their policies too. For a global system, again, because everyone from every nation at the top is part of this big structure. They know what's going on. Of course they know what's going on. And, uh, but I quickly was awfully good about telling you that the top people in every party pretty well across the whole Western world doesn't matter what the party was. Top people are always a member of the same organization. They're vetted way in advance. And they play the game of left and right, etc. And then when you have their books, their members' books, which they, which they published at one time when they had annual meetings, you, you see all the names at the back. Even the heads of communist parties for countries like in Britain were in attendance to their global meetings. And Ireland too, eh? Uh, a lot of the members were, were there too. So, the folk, and, and the top bankers that run these nations were, were also in attendance, see, the, for the future of the British Empire, funded by Rockefeller, and of course all the, the, the old Milner groups uh, guys were there, that had taken over, and their descendants, because they hand them off to their offspring. 
and uh, and here we are down to the present day. Folks still can't can't because it's never mentioned, so you can't catch on. You see, it's, it's it's not mentioned very much at all. In fact, the history given by the BBC is such a oh, well, Orwell said it. Eh? He controls the past, etc., and the future, and all the rest of it. It's all been said before, and and it's so true. It's so incredibly true. Uh, and then again, you, you, have the, you have this wonderful, and it's wonderful from the, from the elite's point of view, way of running the world through creating factions and divisions. Eh? And uh, lots, I mean, Britain sunk basically with mass migration, and so is Germany to an extent too, all from these wars in the Middle East and across Northern Africa for, for years and years. And and um, and they haven't finished yet. We know that they, there'll be even more. So that'll be the complete end of it, when more uh, again military age guys will rush through by the millions into Europe. Uh, when they do away with the last few countries left, like Syria, they won't give up with Syria and Iran because it's not our wars. It's for another reason, as we all know. And by the way, that is another reason as well that a lot of folk are protesting and really upset and ticked off because these endless wars. Um, that people haven't fathomed, they can't fathom out why they're even going on. I mean, the wealth of America, of, I'm talking about the average citizen, <laughs> has been squandered in 30 years of, straight years of, of war. People forget that. It didn't start with 9-11. They already had Desert Storm in 1991, and, and then had the flyovers and all the military around um, Iraq for years. That's a fortune right there. And then they hit it again in 2003, using it as an excuse, of course, 9-11 as an excuse, even though Saddam had nothing to do with it. It was all on the list of the PNAC group. We all know that stuff. It's all published. You can find it up there, yeah, I'm sure, on the net. So you're, you're living through a, a big agenda. I mentioned it so many times. You're living through a script. It's a big business plan, exactly as a, how a big business plan runs. In, in business plans, and that's a striking thing with United Nations and the communist organizations before the United Nations, they all have these five-year plans for one part and 10 years for another and 50-year plans for and even 100-year plans for other parts of it. That's how it's run. And that's how big multinational, international corporations run too. Huge agendas going way off into the future where maybe they'll hire and retire three times, three generations sometimes, you know, all planned that way, how do we make it happen and then have their foundations which are so important to all of this that the tax free foundations that manage the world you know, these are the ones who, who create and finance and train leaders for future warfare including the NGOs that, that, uh, and, and the train, and the ones who train the Antifa groups, etc. They're all from the, the big foundations owned by the richest folk on the planet. This is not conspiracy stuff. Uh, read the foundations, their power and influence. Written years ago. All to do with the, with the Norman Dodd's investigation into it and the, and the Rees Committee. How they, they looked into the, the foundations in America back in the 50s and 60s. I wondered why they were funding the top foundation, like the Ford Carnegie and, and, uh, the Ford Foundation, but that time was already taken over by other foundations that are awfully well known. 
and that they were funding groups to destroy America and radically change it and so on. It made no sense to the people. So this had a, they had sent a, a congressional committee out there to investigate it, and they were shocked by what they found. They were, uh, the, the, the head of the Ford Foundation at that time admitted, and you, you actually get old audios or videos of Norman Dodd talking about this. You know? And he said, he said, he asked, he asked them why they were funding these groups, and the head of the Ford Foundation in America said that we're working hard to, to create a system and alteration of cultures and education so we can seamlessly blend that of the Soviet Union with America down the road. They could blend it all together. Yeah. Most folk haven't got a clue today about all that. It's just amazing, but it's all published. It's in their books, written by the guys who are involved in it. And that's what I'm often said, too. You, you can stuff your head full of all the data you want, but um, it's not enough, obviously, to change the present, which is the way you change the future. You've got to understand more. It's more than just learning who did what. You've got to find out why. You also have to look into all the whys, how people went along with things, and why they went along with things and accepted conditions and systems that they shouldn't have. Again, too, how can you possibly even live under a system and accept at the same time that most of the, the agencies above you in government are secret and run secretively on plans and agendas you, you're not given even access to. You might down the road uh, have laws implemented by them upon you, uh, but you know you're not even brought into the, to the debate about things, to setting up or anything. No. Who decides the future of a nation? Hmm? Think about it. Do you get to um, fill out questionnaires about what you want to see in the future of a nation? Do you? For voting? You're just given the front people to vote for, aren't you? It doesn't matter what party is in, the same agenda goes ahead. Look at the free trade deals. Generations went by for free trade deals pretty well. And then the, the ones in the 90s to do with North, the North American Free Trade. First it was the Free Trade Agreement, the North American Free Trade Agreement. And then you had the Free Amigos, uh, two prime ministers and a president, uh, Mexico, Canada, States, uh, meeting every year to further tie us into a, a, and a binding, that's what they called a binding system, bound together, which would be the nucleus of, of a, an EU-type authority, a European parliamentary authority down the road. That's what they hoped for. And then they would start bringing more Latin American countries in, and the Caribbean countries too, naturally. All discussed and printed in the rest of it. But um, it was done, it was admitted to, that the whole thing was drafted up and worked upon for years by the Council on Foreign Relations, a group that's private, a private group that often claims itself to be the establishment. One of his videos it put out itself talked about this, it's itself as the establishment. And you don't vote for them. Most folk don't even know what they are or that they exist. You're giving these front comedians or politicians to, to look at and boo and throw tomatoes at, you know. And uh, and that's what you're given for politics. Have you ever heard any real wisdom come out of the mouths of politicians? Come on. Come on. You watch this Punch and Judy show. That's what it's called, Punch and Judy show. Like they used to have at fairs in the Middle Ages and all up to, up to the 20th century. Uh, where people would 
have these puppets bashing each other with clubs and so on. That's what politicians are. They're there to take the heat, but not to ever to tell you what's really going on. The key to all of this, of course, is that think tanks, privately owned think tanks, have run the world for an awful long time. And they still do. They, we, we know, the, as I say, the, the top politicians are picked long before the public even hear their names to vote for. And they're vetted, and they'll do what they're told, there's no doubt about it. And um, and all parties are in on it at the top. That's why when nothing really changes for the better for the general population, it gets worse and worse. And I can remember looking at the old, old books I found about Canada as an example, and I've seen the same for Britain, but you have the, the, the Departments of Information and Statistics and owned by the government pretty well. And, and everyone's measured and, and weighed and yada yada and numbered long, long before we came along, our generation. And I've got ones going back to the early 1900s and right down to how many matchsticks were made by companies and things like that. Just incredible data they had in us all before they had computers. Uh, at least we're told it anyway. <laughs> but anyway, it, it is quite fascinating to see how these massive books with uh, the, the years of production and, and costs and all the rest of it, and every little company in the country listed. But back in the, the, the early 20th century in Canada, Britain at that time, or London, the Renault, I think it's in Britain, it's like a, a, this strange entity. What the heck is Britain really? It's got millions of people, all kinds of people living in it. And before the mass migration, there were still lots of different kinds living in it. Uh, the Yorkshire folk were, had their own identity and culture, and it was, and, uh, and different parts of the country was similar. Had been for centuries, that kind of thing. But yeah, but when it comes to official purposes, you see, and taxation and things like that, then they want you all to be one part of Britain or for war. It would send you off to fight for things you have, you have no idea that it's really all about. You never get told the truth. And, uh, and when you come back from these wars, the, the ordinary folk have either lost their jobs or work or their farms or whatever, and nothing's ever the same again. Uh, and then you've got another one. It's the same kind of thing over and over. And in between that, you're global. I remember back in the 90s talking about this. I said, eventually, you know, well, because you kept talking about globalist and global that and how it was the greatest thing under since sliced bread. And we'd all be happy under globalism and all the companies were putting this rah-rah thing, the governments were putting rah-rah and hands across the sea, etc. And they came out with their real plans, which was international free trade for the big top corporations. Uh, so they could really send their stuff all over the planet from all countries and have the citizens back home in the first world countries paying for all. Do you ever wonder why you can order things from China for peanuts for cheaper uh, than, you, than you could even post a letter in your own country to your neighbor? You're paying for it, that's why. That's called free trade. It's part of the deal. And it isn't just China you're paying for the postage to you. <laughs> it's a quite a few countries too. We can look up the lists of the nations, including some in the Middle East, by the way. Uh, you're paying uh, the, the, big, um, the, the bulk of their postage on whatever's getting transferred around the world. Free trade. Great deal for the corporations, isn't it? And you pay for all. And, and at the same time, you end up with no work back home. 
because your own governments, again, all kinds, right wing and left wing in succession, all signed on to integrate it further and further as they get in. Uh, and, and then end up with no work back home, no factories, no ability to produce anything. You don't even have the ability to eat, make your own uh, basic painkillers or acetaminophen, the very simple medication. Because even that's farmed out to other countries. First it was farmed out to China under free trade. That's why it was so cheap for a long time. And then at length last year, the year before, they gave the contract under the, the new Trans-Pacific Partnership, which they included India in for some reason. And, and, and then it moved it, their, their base of operations to India. And it's way more expensive now. But in, at home, oh, nothing's made here. Eh? There you go. And you can't even make anything to, to save yourself if you need. This is the thing. I, I keep thinking back to Britain and World War One and then two. And, and Britain was locked down in World War One because of the Germany then and Britain as well had submarines and submarines could play havoc with, with shipping that was bringing in food and supplies and all. But especially in World War Two, there's far more subs around. And, uh, and Britain had already given up its ability to be, to, to be self-sustaining by farming. Uh, I've always thought that's an odd thing that, I mean, food is one of the most basic things you need. Without it, everything else is a pipe dream. Just everything starts with food, folks. Hmm? Food and water. And, and why would your nations literally make you helpless? Well, once again, it was the big corporations that dealt with the shipping lines. Uh, we've had member, leaders in Canada that, that whose, whose parents were involved in this too, that their own shipping line companies for transferring food to other countries, etc. And often when they're combined with interest in agriculture, like agri, agri-food businesses, they, they decide what countries are going to get the cheap food and who's not going to eat. And they even try to, and even lobby at home to put laws to stop you even making enough food at home for yourself. This is all rigged, you see. There's no such thing as a, a free enterprise system. It's just the opposite. And, and it's not new. I say Britain almost sunk in World War Two because it, it, it couldn't produce food for itself. It was completely, almost completely dependent for a long time on food coming in from from the U.S. And a lot of that ship eventually uh, was in trouble after 1942 as well. And uh, and they had all you can actually look up the old videos on wartime farms, for instance, and and you see what they had to do go through. And the government just expands. Oh, they love it during war. They expand. Socialistic systems and principles and, and, and government departments just blossom and, and, and swell like cancers, like you wouldn't believe. And that's why they love socialism. Because anything you do, you're told, because it's all for the, for the good of all. You're all in it together, etc. And, um, and you all pull, pull along together and do what you're told for the good of everybody else, for the, for the greater good. Never changes, eh? And during World War II, the government in Britain stole farms all over the place off of people. Because here's the tragedy of, of things. Great Britain, eh? Let's be proud of Great Britain, eh? It had been so many wars all through the 1800s. The country, the, the people were broke with taxes. And, and really, even then, they're, all, they're kept in a starvation level, most of the people. Not, not, not the middle class and upper class, of course. But they were. 
Uh, they, they gone through the Industrial Revolution in the 1700s and 80s. So bad it was that even Benjamin Franklin, this is the truth here, in his own memoirs, talked about that when he visited Britain. And he saw these factory workers coming out of, of a, a big shoe factory and boot factory, barefoot in the winter, because they couldn't afford to buy the boots themselves. This was, this was reality, folks, you know. There was no welfare system. Folk had to work often 16 hours a, a day just to eat <laughs> and get, maybe get a, a place over their head, which was a hovel. Often there was 10, 12 or more to a room. It's a horror show. But again, the, the wonders of propaganda and so on can displace all that and, 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 and really tuck it away into the background until you, until it's a hazy thing and it's forgotten altogether. That's how it works. And then you end up in the 20th century and, and they already just had the Boer War, you know, uh, getting really, as we're taking over Africa and South Africa and so on. Again, by the Milner Group, Lord Alfred Milner, for the Royal Institute for International Affairs, that private group that was just called the Milner Group in the kindergarten at the time. And they, they picked youngsters up in university in Oxford, all souls, and, and they trained them. They trained them to be governors of different countries that they would take over. And they list all their names, of course, if you go into their histories, long, long histories. But anyway, that's how it was done. And the people end up in these wars, world wars. They needed, by the way, the Milner Group wanted world wars. They mentioned that. Because then they could, they could then further amalgamate countries, even competing and conflicting and war warring countries together at the end of it, when everybody's on their knees. That's how you got the League of Nations idea coming in, you see. So it's, uh, yeah, the past is a horror show. So anyway, World War II comes along and Britain had lost so many farmers and like, you talk about dads and, and sons often. And uncles, all wiped out in some areas. The lot of them. They would join local regiments, gone, same in Canada and elsewhere in Australia. Gone, uh, New Zealand. And so it left a lot of them just struggling with farms between, in the 20 years between, you know, from the end of World War I and the beginnings of World War II in 1939. And, um, so the government, if they couldn't, they ordered you to produce. And if you couldn't produce enough because you didn't have enough manpower or people running the farm or whatever, or maybe it was an old dad left, all the sons were dead from the previous war, uh, the government just grabbed them and stole them. And, and then they, they amalgamated a whole bunch of them, you see, here, there, and everywhere, and they would give it to these rich characters, who still own them today, by the way, you know. And, and then, then I've got the volunteers and land army. It's even better, isn't it? It smacks the same kind of, you get little smackings or smatterings of the same system down to the present time. Because then you had land army volunteers and, and all these folk coming in for the war effort who, who were free labor for you. Hmm? And the, every, every square inch of, of workable land had to be plowed and the whole thing and used for the war effort. We're all in it together once more, you see. And you could get vegetables, but you couldn't get much meat at all for the general population. Winston Churchill hadn't a problem. He, they had parties for Winston. He talked about it. His, his secretary talked about it. If you ever bother reading the books and, on it, his personal secretary wrote about it. And how they had these huge parties in certain parts of London, underground bunkers, huge, like palaces, really. In fact, some of them were under palaces. And other ones were outside London. 
and they ate had everything they could imagine of eating and, and food and, and uh, uh, elegant wines, etc., champagne, the whole lot, all through the war. But they're ordinary people. Uh, like being good people, mind you, put up with it and the rationing, starvation level rationing, until you, there was no, there was no obese people before World War II pretty well in Britain, because they'd been through a great depression in between two world wars, and in, the, in both wars they had rationing. It's just astonishing what you put up with. And the folk who go off and fight have no idea. They wouldn't even know who Lord Alfred Milner was. He said, you may get his name in a newspaper once in a while as one of his protégés was sent over to govern South Africa or something like that, you know, or India. But they have no idea of this big, this, even Winston Churchill had an argument. It's, it's recorded in, in Parliament in Britain. Because at the beginnings of the war, he had no idea what the, that these characters have been manipulating the, the system to get Britain. He was also getting manipulated by another group to get into the war, by the way, an outside group. But the same token, he was ticked off when he found out that this other group that was that had other plans for the, the, the Great War, this, this World War Two, you know, and his mission and what they wanted to accomplish, and, and he argued about it. Because at that time, it was a very secretive group, you know. Different names it had at the time. The All Souls group was one of them as well. It was so secretive, like layers of it, that in an inner party and an outer party, you know, just like the CFR still has today for for their for their missions abroad, so to speak. Yeah, the folk in Britain fought those wars, all truly believing they were doing the best of all to save everybody and doing it, you know. Hadn't a clue what was to come at the end of it. Hadn't a clue that Winston Churchill, and I put up the articles years ago. You should go into cuttingthroughthematrix.com and, and look at some of them. Lots of, them, lots of authors use my, my material. So it stacks over there. But uh, Winston Churchill uh, literally talks about all, all of this too, as I say. And his, his desire, he said, this is wonderful. When the, the war broke, he says, we might, we, we'll, we'll, we shall probably, and hopefully, he says, establish a, a long dream of united Europe. I mean, meanwhile, he's telling folk on the radio at nights, you, you go off and fight and die to save your culture, your way of life. <laughs> meanwhile, he's talking, uh, and, and his sector recorded all these things, eh? Our united Europe. Oh no, died. And be, uh, the, the, now, if you told that to the to the British folk at that time, they, they'd been completely bewildered. What was he talking about? United Europe. We're fighting to, to keep our, our own way of life. We're quite happy with it the way it is. You know, it's never perfect, and it's pretty bad for a lot of people. But it's better than a lot of folk had even in Europe at that time. And every culture likes its own culture to an extent, don't you? Because it's familiar to you, <laughs> if nothing else. But it's also part of it, and I, I mean it's across the world you meet people who will fight and die for their nations, or, or the plot of land that they live on. It's a natural thing, you feel tied to the land, it's in the soil, it's in the genes almost, and you give that, 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 that bonding to it. I remember reading a, a, a poem by a Scots guy that uh, they wrote about the 1930s and 40s, maybe into the 50s. A miner, and, and he, he talked about having to leave, because it was Scotland, like, like, like parts of England too. 
in Wales, uh, because this corrupt system that always ran you, was often, it couldn't afford to, as he said in his poem, a country like Scotland, it couldn't afford to feed his children. So you had to move. But meanwhile, you had the richest folk concentrated in London. The richest folk in the world at that time concentrated in parts of London, especially the city of London. And of course, the, the migration helped, you see, to expand the empire. Hmm? So we're all used and abused, and most folk haven't got a clue it's even happening at the time. Instead, they're given what they've got in the States at the moment. They've got the front groups, uh, the BLM groups, with, with the, the heads of them. It's no mystery. It's not conspiracy theory. They admit, and they're out there admitting, there's even a video of them admitting that they're trained Marxist organizers who know exactly what they're doing. Where Marxism always has front groups and gets them all battling with other groups. And then you have the Antifa groups. There's no mystery there. There's a good, quite a good history of them, long history. And then the reorganization of them back again in the 90s because they used them. They used to send them in to the anti-global meetings that were going on. The anti-globalist meetings were awfully good at the time and, and folk came across from the countries to, to protest these, these meetings where they were again planning offshore all your, your work and your factories off to China and, and the Far East. But then would come the Antifa group and, and jump in on the bandwagon and start throwing their usual Molotov cocktails at police cars, etc., and give everybody else a bad name, you see. And actually say it in their handbooks, you see, that they piggyback upon uh, uh, certain events that, cause, um, that, that are plausible that, that, and are emotional events. Jump on top of them, end up being the champions, but then see it off into your revolution. This is how they do it, you see. Well funded too. But once folks' emotions get up, they seldom think very clearly. It's, it's very interesting to watch the phenomenon. I mentioned it before that uh, the tremendous, the terrible things that happened in Rwanda, with the genocide in Rwanda, you had the, the eventual completely, complete unleashing of many years of utter hatred against this other tribe. That, uh, that had skirmishes with over 100 or 200 years even, and the hatred had boiled up and boiled up, and it was really institutional, and they let loose. And uh, literally, the chopping up of people went on for weeks. You can actually hear it on the audio. It was from uh, people who were there at the time with cameras, you know, from reporters from abroad. You could actually hear it. Uh, you know, <laughs> it was It was terrible. And that's what happens when... When clever folk can utilize the hatred and stir it up and actually augment it, really thicken it, you might say, intensify, and then they use it for different purposes. Big coffee plantation growers were involved in this too outside the country because uh, there's always other reasons for what you see in the news, always, and always other interests behind anything to do with skirmishes or wars. There's always economic interests. Uh, lying deep, deep below on behalf of those who understand resources and how to use them and who want them. No wonder. Reporters were on the roads. It's like, it, it actually, I always think of these, whenever you see roads full of people, you think the number of refugees is one. Like, I always think of refugees in carts in Europe and so on, the beginning, of, or even during World War One and then World War Two. 
But then you get other refugees that, that really are promoted to come into countries now. These are like, like the massive invasion across Europe. That was all, that took billions of dollars to work all that, that out and to finance and even train them. Some of them coming in were telling you that they'd all been trained in advance for purposes of taking down European countries. And we know some of the folk who were behind it because they even put videos out themselves about it in some of these countries. Unashamedly, yeah. And then down the road you use them, eh? To take down the nations. Just standard warfare technique. Migration has always been used for this kind of purpose. Migration was used in ancient times. You have biblical episodes of it. And, and pre-biblical too. Because not everything happens in the Bible, obviously. But you, you had different uh, groups that would remove people out of, of where they lived and transfer them to other nations in order to, to destabilize their power and, and, and dethrone um, them from their, over their own people so that the people could be used by the conquering people coming in, you see. Uh, so there's different ways you can use uh, migration, mass migration by law. The Soviet era was awfully interesting. I always think, because the Soviet era used very, very old techniques, very, very old techniques. You get, you get wisps of it through your lifetime. This is why it's important to try to always remember as much as you can per day as you're living through things, you know? Because it, it, real history is inside you. You, you live it. Forget the books that are written later that, that they'll change it all and so. You're living in history. And you must use your own perception. Don't be given it by someone else. You know. Anything that, that they are offered, investigate it completely to make up your own mind. But the, the Soviet system is just like the Norman system. It sent troops in, of course, to, to different countries like Latvia. You had Latvia. They give articles coming out, you know, years later in Latvia after the so-called Soviet system. Collapse, which it didn't really collapse as such, you know, not always presented. But yeah, you had Latvia and you had Ukraine, you had different countries where the Soviets uh, had tremendous influence in the Soviet pack countries and they had troops in, into many of these countries training them and so on. And, and it stayed them with, with full time barracks, much the same as the US does t- today across the Middle East and, and even Beirut at one time and so on. But the Soviets, were given extra money if they would marry uh, local women. The idea to, to breed themselves in to society, which would help dilute the cultural uh, homogeneity of the people. It's much harder down the road, 20 years or 30 years down the road, uh, for, the, for the entire people to, to stand up and throw you out. When by that time, one, at least one third of them are part Russian, you see. It's all through so many folks, families by that time. That's how it was done. And that was a deliberate policy. They paid the troops extra if they would settle in the areas by marrying uh, girls in those areas where they were stationed. Very old system, a very old technique. And, and it smacks, as I say, the same kind of, uh, kind of thing that happened with the Norman invasion into, into England or Britain or England, really. Uh, and uh, even the Roman, uh, the Romans did tried this too one time. And after the Romans really collapsed, or the same kind of thing, uh, and went back home to, to Rome from England, they did leave a lot of people back in, in, in England at the time. 
And we have histories of them from monks. It was really interesting. Uh, the, the, of certain families who still stayed behind, and they were very old Roman families. But, but again, uh, the Normans, when they came into Britain, they, uh, they had prima nocta, which is first night, of course. And of course, the, the nobility would literally, um, if a maiden was going to get married in the local areas, or the Saxon areas and so on, in England, uh, they'd just take the right to uh, have uh, sex with them in the hope they get pregnant. Uh, and the, and you, so now you've got relatives within the local community that, that you'll groom to be in charge of the community. But an old, old technique, really. Nothing new about it. I'm sure it might still go on in some parts of the world today. It wasn't just first night and the whole thing. The idea was to breed themselves into the, the people. And even their offspring would become future leaders over those peoples. In Ireland, you have an interesting situation where some of the Fitz, like Fitzsimmons and, and so on, often had noble parentage, but they were Ill- illegitimate, but they were still given a legal standing, you see. And so hence this, the, the prefix Fitz part to their names, Fitzgerald, etc. And so that still stood today. This isn't getting off the topic, really. What it is showing you is the great powers manage us all. And it doesn't come from little people in every generation just reinventing the wheel. These are sciences that are recorded and understood over many, many, many centuries. Many, going way back to Plato and, and even before Plato's. Some of these philosophers in ancient Greece were awfully interesting because they were interested. <laughs> And what was happening around them. And they, and they like to put it down, especially in their schools. And the, the leisure class came to them, you know, and they were getting trained uh, into this. And philosophy wasn't just there for passing the time, although the, the, the school came from the term really um, leisure, you know, and wealth and leisure. You had leisure because the, the ordinary people hadn't time to learn anything except maybe a trade or something. But those who ruled the ruling uh, classes, or maybe even castes for all that, and, and, and Greece, and Greece is a huge area. It wasn't just a little, there's so many hundreds of islands, in fact, involved too. But some of them, uh, again, were actually condemned by the state, some of these teachers, because they wanted to overthrow the system and bring in this new system. And, and Socrates, of course, wasn't just get offered his, his poison because of that. Uh, it, it, there were def, there were definite um, charges laid against them. It's interesting. In the Enlightenment era, they always resurrect Socrates and his teachings. Interesting uh, teachings, absolutely, uh, and a good mind behind it, and maybe a, good, a better mind between the behind the translators, because you can fudge an awful lot of perhaps uh, better thinking it by translating it in a certain way. But anyway, you, you find that Socrates was also charged with literally trying to subvert the youth. It wasn't sexually. At least that wasn't promoted as such or part of the charge. It was to, to train the youth to overthrow the parents and the systems or to be revolutionaries. That's what it was about. And that, when it was brought out into the open, uh, the parents and the nobility just lost it. They said, what, what, had no idea. And this all came out during the inquiries. It was so bad 
that many of the students had to flee for their lives because they were trained to be revolutionaries. Plato had to disappear for a while. And, and he did, quite, quite a long time. And they had this interesting similarity to different groups that, that even, like the, the Senes that, that came along too in the Middle East as well, that lots of things in common. Where you would get groups in, you would have, you would have an initial meeting groups, like, like a, an open day, put that way, every so often, where folk could come in and listen to the, to the, the lower exoteric teachings. And they would say, that's rather pleasant, etc. I wouldn't mind joining that. And then, if one of the youngsters came in to join it, and probably paid by the parents, they thought it would give them a good education. Uh, then if they, if they had the right stuff, because they had, they had levels and degrees, just like, Later groups had too, uh, of induction, all the way up, as I say, to the Lord Alfred Milner group that has an, uh, an inner party and an outer party. That's the idea came from George Orwell's 1984. The inner party and the outer party. In the circle of friends, etc., and the constant foreign relations. So it, it's, that's how, it, it, very old ideas. And all elitists, you see, going way back to even Socrates, it's all to do with elitism. And through the, the, the various dialogues that they would have um, in, their, in their teachings, they'd always have a, a discourse, a kind of um, fantasy discourse with someone else as a teaching tool. If I said to you, blah, 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 what would you reply or think? And then you'd, then you'd try to guide them into, into what you, the way you want them to think. But it's always to question what is. What is, what is this and what is that? And not, not, not really to enlighten you as such, maybe partly, but then to take you off and reshape you and to, now think about it this way, you know? Well, that's how people are recruited today for the most horrible things on humanity. Oh, what do you think of all these little people? It's kind of like The Third Man, eh? the movie. Awfully, one of the best movies ever made, The Third Man. It was so well directed and written and directed and, and filmed. Oh, black and white movie. And, and the location is, was fantastic during, uh, actual reoccupation of a country that was post-World War II, where you'd still had, and you'd still had the Russian and, and British and American and French uh, quadrants and these these big cities were by the Allies, as they say, and all these displaced displaced peoples. None of none of them wanted to be grabbed if they if they had a background uh, or come from a country that was now owned, run over, or ruled by the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union could take you back, just demand that you, even though you weren't in their country, you were in Vienna and, and so on. Uh, they could demand that you go back there, you see. Horrible things happened. But in the movie, uh, the villain, Orson Welles, is up in, uh, he's meeting his, his pal, his pal came over to see him, and his pal thought that, that Orson, you know, the third man was dead, because he had a fake burial, and then he found he was alive, and they came up to question him, and Orson Welles had been really, been sought, the reason he, he pretended at death was he was sought by the, the police and the Allied forces at the time, the military police, because one of his scams was getting penicillin and diluting it. 
and then reselling it for big money. It was so, and, and went to children's hospitals, and they were dying of meningitis and things. And of course, the antibiotic was no use; it was too diluted. All these kind of, these scams did go on, by the way. Scams and, and medicine is have all ripped the present time, as you all know, I'm sure. And so Orson Welles meets the guy on a carousel, a big, one of these big round wheels or something around and so on. And they go up in it, and at the top, uh, Wells talks to his friend that goes over to see him. He said, look at all these people down there. Because his friend was saying, oh, you, you know, you're, you've been accused of this. Is this true? You know? your, your medicine is, is now killing children. And Orson Welles looks down and says, look at all those people down there. And he says, do you really think that this system thinks any more of those people, you know. He says, the state calls them the proletariat, you know. I call them the masses, and so on. And the communists call them the masses, and I call them the, you know. In other words, they're just little dots, he says. And how much is each dot really worth to you? And that's how a psychopath would describe humanity, the victims of whatever. They're just, you know, they're nothings. And that's how we're really ruled, folks. You have no idea of many layers of psychopaths are are churned out of academia and selected for their qualities as psychopaths, the particular traits, to do dastardly things over the general populations. They're generally arrogant, well-paid, trained in in either psychology or, or behaviorism, often both. And persuasive techniques to, to so folk will can be convinced to obey them right down to even giving up your own life. You know, is it? Are you really worth the money your government will spend on you? Why don't you just sign this little thing and and, and decide? Yeah, I've had enough. I, I, I'll be. I become a burden on, and you end up with eugenical euthanasia. It's here, folks. It's been here. And I did the talks years ago when it was brought into Canada. I did the talks years ago when they'd introduced it into Holland, a big test case there. That's what they, a trial bed for all. And yet, the, the public, just like getting drift, drifting into war and drifting into everything, never figuring things out, because the media is so powerful, like the Rockefeller said, how many newspapers and magazines do we have to own? To create the, basically the all newsworthy themes, we will be in charge of it all. That was back in the nineteen thirties, and they did it all. Tonight, I'll only put up um, a link to the pandemic video, and this video is part of the pandemic series, and so you can have a look at it. It's really, really good. It's well done. And it, it, it really is, is well done in, in, in the way it's who they show you clip by clip on one side of the screen, the sequences of introducing a, a plague to the public, basically, under, under the actual exercise, the two, event 201, they had, they should, you see them saying, here's the topics, here's what they say, and they have these actors doing these things. And then the right hand side, you see, you see the exact same things done in reality when COVID broke out, exact same sequences. Well done. Well worth watching. No conspiracy here. I mean, you're seeing it. It's, it's right from this horse's mouth, eh? Right down to, uh, during the exercise, I've mentioned this before, 
before the movie was made, your next assignment, Event 201, said that uh, we'll have to deal with, with, with fake information about it, and, and they'll start with just censoring this and censoring that, and they'll end up arresting people if need be, and, blah, blah. and that's, we're just following the script, folks. Yep. And some other things, too, to do with other agencies that Bill Gates and his foundation run. They sound, you, you wouldn't know they're his, really, but they're all, they're, they're, it's a small group, really, with the Gavi and all the rest of them. The groups to do with uh, vaccinations. And WHO, he funds a lot of that too. Maybe three quarters, it's been said, uh, the funding goes to. And so it sounds like all these official sources are saying the same thing. It must all, it has to be true. Until you're, they're all getting it from only one source. All of them. All these begins. But the news organizations just parroting. It's done again and well in the video. Uh, you, you see them all parting the same lines, like verbatim, word for word, regardless of the name of the news company, because they're all on board with it. That's the beauty of standardized information coming from the same source. You can rule the world that way. Plato said something similar, by the way. So that also mentions it in the video, <laughs> that, that the storyteller controls the country. Yeah. That's how it's done. Anyway... I'll put that one up. It's a must-see, folks. Um, and who knows about it, if I'll be up for long or not. It's in BitChute right now. And BitChute 2, apparently, is now having its, an onslaught against it and, and succumbing to censorship, etc., in certain areas. So that, that's the way it goes. Um, I said years ago, before I had a computer... And I was giving talks, because I would never use a computer initially... And only got it eventually simply because it was on full-time radio at the time. But up until then, no, I, I could, I, I had stacks of books, I had good libraries and had all the information I really need to know what was going on. But I knew eventually, I knew that obviously that the whole idea with the internet, from the very way they, 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 they really launched it to the general population, both to children and adults, is awfully interesting. Because in the 90s, the 1990s, Decided dumping books out of libraries. They call it weeding. I've done talks on, on this whole process called weeding. You can look it up in your own areas, the weeding of books. And first they started with books that, uh, that they didn't want the public to read. The tremendous censorship was happening and the folk hadn't a clue. And then they started dumping books, like, like generations of books that were built up, just dumping them. I, in the countryside I saw stacks of getting dumped in a local, a local garbage dump. And that was happening all over the place. And most of it haven't got a clue that even happened. And then towards uh, maybe the middle of, of the 1990s, maybe 1996 or 7, but at the same time, 1995, where it, it was announced. Now remember, in 1995, you, you, most people were kind of sailing along. All you had at that, at that time was the free trade deals and so on. You were losing all your factories abroad and lots of folk were losing their homes because they ran out of places to work to pay their mortgages off. Uh, all signed and signed and sealed and delivered by the politicians in every country. Every country was on board with this, the politicians were. But then in 1995, when all this was happening, I think it was the Toronto Sun, I can't remember if the names, it was Grattan or something, I can't remember the guy's name, but, but he came up with an article 
And he said, they'll tap, they'll tap her phones. I think it was tap her phones to please Uncle Sam. It was an agreement that had been made with Canada, just, just made with Canada and the States, uh, to literally insert, uh, back doors into phones. It wasn't just like cell phones. It was all phones. And they said all communication devices. It was fax machines, everything. Had to, had to have, uh, signatures so they could trace who they were, blah, blah, blah. And, and you couldn't sell any phone from then on or fax machine without these things inserted or any communication device. Of course, the early cell phones were the same. And everybody was saying, well, what was going on here? Nothing was, you know, we weren't, we weren't under terrorism at that time except from the government. And then, of course, it was a few years later, not long, maybe 1998 or so, 97 or 98, that Alan Rock, who was Attorney General of Canada, uh, passed, some, he, I guess he drafted it or something, but he passed the whole thing, it seemed by himself, uh, to do with, uh, it was an omnibus crime bill. And at that time you had some reporters who could actually ask questions and, and dared to. And he said, what on earth is this? This isn't just a crime, this is an anti-terrorism scenario, a whole, whole omnibus thing. Will you be held indefinitely for different purposes without charges? All that. Oh, it's all in there. Before 9-11 happened, remember. So you're building up to this whole scenario that had been planned beforehand, folks. All of it. 